Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Hi, Matt. Morning, Stu. Yes, it is morning and uh, back into Thrive Deeper. Mm. Uh, looking forward to this conversation as we move through a couple of uh, letters from Paul to the church in Colossae and also to the church in Thessalonica. Yeah. And uh, we're going to try to cover these two books together through this episode today. So thanks for joining us in Thrive Deeper. If you've been reading through the uh, Thrive Bible Guide with us, then I encourage you to feel free to reference back. We're going to be moving through uh, a fair bit today through Colossians and, and Thessalonians. So first of all, Colossians, let's begin there. Mm. This was a letter written by Paul from prison at the time mm. in Rome to a church uh, that he actually didn't start. Mm. Uh, the church was started by Paphras, who was from Colossae, and which is in probably modern-day Turkey, lower part of modern-day, yeah. lower left part of modern-day Turkey. Which is interesting. That That's interesting because it shows that the disciples that Paul was making in his missionary journeys, I mean, these are solid people. This this is a guy that now goes out in, in a kind of quasi-apostolic role in the sense of being sent out to plant churches. Yeah, yeah. Man, uh, there's some solid, not only disciples, but disciple makers That's here. Right. Yeah, totally. uh, so this is this really shows, I think, how fruitful Paul's ministry is, that he's not only planting churches, but that he's actually raising up church planters. Exactly. And and I think also to, to note, you know, for Epaphras and in and, and many of these places, pretty hostile territory to be going into yeah. and trying to plant a church because it was so countercultural, the, the teaching of Christ, obviously. Yeah. And and, that, and then there was also a fair bit of spiritualism going on and really a, a big chunk of Colossians is to deal with sort of this mixture, this hybrid of kind of polytheism and yeah. Greek mythology, and and then also the Judaizers who wanted everyone to abide by the yeah. Torah, and, the, and you know, so all these different influences coming in, and I think that's a lot, a large part of what this. Yeah, this it is. Book I was, I had a, a absolute epiphany while I was reading this book, Stuart. I, it's one of those things where it's something that you know, but it hits you in a really fresh way, and and as I went through this book, I. I noted actually and highlighted in green on my iPad all of the references to Jesus and the preeminence of Christ. And this is this letter really focuses on this. And the sense in which when we join with Christ, there's almost a sense in which while we still uh, while the Bible still affirms our individual identity, even elevates that individual identity, yet in another sense, that sort of individualistic autonomous self that we I guess, know ourselves are in our fragmented fallen humanity, that self completely is to completely give way and be yeah. sacrificed to this new self that is part of Christ. You know, that I think the the radical nature of that transition and my my epiphany was around this idea of discipleship, of being so, so joined to Christ and so much becoming a part of Christ that that you you in a sense you have to actually sacrifice that autonomous self-created sort of identity and and it just struck me mm. how big a step that was and how i think how reticent perhaps i am deep down to actually do that how how much of me there there is to that wants to hold on yeah, yeah. you know to totally. that to that old self and so you know cuz paul says one point without jumping ahead too much here but he you know he talks about uh, the old self dying mm. and 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 this new self that is you know part of the body of Christ 
And I thought, wow. Like, yeah, yeah. Know, I mean, we we avoid death like nothing else. And I feel like there's this natural intuitive avoidance of this act of sacrifice mm. that is needed to really actually step into the full freedom, uh, you know, yes. of, I mean, I, you know, I think what we relinquish, what we relinquish is a, a burdened life, a life where we're burdened uh, with having to, you know, maintain our own sense of identity yes. and significance and, and, and to step into a life uh, where our significance Jesus, is. Easy, yeah, that's right. And yeah. the easy yoke of, of yeah. Jesus. Although the other thing that I recognize both reading Colossians and Thessalonians is how, difficult it would have been to become a Christian in these Roman towns particularly yes, I mean okay. certainly in you know in Jerusalem and and the you know the with the opposition of the Jews but in these Roman towns you've got both you've got yes. the opposition of the local synagogue because it was always understood as a sort of a messianic Jewish movement mm. in the first place mm. but then you've got serious opposition from in, from Gentiles, the locals, because yeah. you know, if 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 everyone doesn't worship the Roman gods, then we're all in trouble. Yes. That's kind of the way that they thought. Yeah. And so I'll well, I'll say a little bit more about this when we get to Thessalonians, because because I think this plays a little bit into that. But it it really you know really would have been a, a sacrificial step yeah. uh, to do that, and the, the you know I guess the temptation to want to. Do both in in a, in a way. The invitation there was to do both. Yeah. It was. It would have been. I think the Romans would have been fine with just adding another god onto the yeah. plethora. And that's what gods. I was going to say. This whole sense of there being one only central, you know, yeah, was foreign to them. It's like, hang on, we've got Apollos and we've got this and we've got that and we've got the other. And yeah, sure, Jesus as well. And Paul's going, no, no, yeah. not Jesus as well. That's right. You know, yeah. Uh, and, and 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 that's totally. that's that's why this theme of the preeminence of Christ yeah. is such a, a dominant one in this book because, you know, on the one hand, th- th- there's this pressure to worship the Roman gods. And to not just add on, do the add-on thing. Yep. And then on the other hand, there's pressure from the local synagogue mm-hmm. uh, that wants to draw them back into into the law. Into the law. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got these forces, you know, working yeah. against them. Yeah. And you know, in in these towns, uh, you know, life is really about who you know and being in with the right people. And there wasn't a sense of you know, everyone has a right to live their own no. lives the way that they want. No, you actually depended on the favor of the community towards you, and particularly the favor of powerful people yeah. in that community. Yeah. And so if the community turned against you, if you were ostracized in some ways, that had implications then that it doesn't really have Have-tale. now. Yeah. And it would have made life very difficult. So so you see Christians here paying quite a significant price. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is part of this the thing that impacted me about this, because I think it's easy for us to to add our faith on as another thing. You know, we worship all the gods of our gods in inverted commas. Yes. You know, we chase all the same goals and we just live like and, and we sort of add this on the on the end and we go to church and yeah. but it's not an add-on. No. Jesus isn't an add-on. Uh, he is preeminent. He he becomes our Lord. We sacrifice our old life completely to him to become a disciple of Jesus. Mm. And he calls us to be given over to his purpose in the midst of what we do. I mean, it doesn't mean we leave our jobs and no. we leave our society. No, we, we we remain in those places, but we serve Jesus in those contexts. And that's a radical difference. Mm. And for Paul, it's as radical a difference as the putting to death of that old person yeah. and a completely new person arising. So that, totally. you know, I think the it's that, that's what's so radical yeah. uh, about this. And I guess there's some comfort because we've probably all been through, well, certainly I've been through this, where there's stages where you, you, you're feeling so 
connected and so you know, committed to that cause that you're questioning your your motives and every decision you make, you're kind of going, okay, is this for the right reasons? Then you get into the business of life and suddenly you realize you haven't actually kind of really thought about it. It's just easy to get carried away by the things of the world without yeah. actually stopping and, and seeking God. So interesting pressures that are coming on. And then, as we say, Epaphras, who Paul had never been there to, to yeah. Colossae. So, you know, here's this guy who's never had the benefit of, yep. you know, in a sense, Paul being there to, to having to kind of communicate on his faith, as you yeah. say, an amazing, an amazing disciple maker that Paul was, and now another disciple maker that Epaphras is as well. Yeah. And, and, of, and of course, Paul always expresses how much he's praying for these churches yes. and, yeah. uh, but also very much aware of the, this opposition that, that they face. And, you know, to he address that and and I will work through how this theme yeah. uh, uh, how this theme appears throughout the book of Colossians. So he says to them, verse ten, you know, he talks about them walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So this is, you know, he's going he's going to now continually want to draw them away from all these other forces, right. uh, all the other pressures. Mm. Everyone's trying to make a claim on them, and actually, there's. In in a sense, it's it's a liberating thing that he's offering them, but it's a, it's something that's going to bring them. While it brings liberation, it's also going to bring hardship for them. I yes. mean, that's the, the interesting. In a sense, they lift off a self-imposed hardship, the burden of worshiping lots of gods and mm. ple- you know, and and trying to get on and tr- focus on, I guess, the identity building goals of you know that we still still yes. part of society today. That's enormously burdensome. While they're going to experience liberation in Christ in that sense, they're also going to experience hardship. So, you know, he's calling them into this. And in verse 13, you know, he underscores the radical nature of this transition. And he says this as well. This letter, by the way, mirrors a lot of the themes in Ephesians. Yes. That's often been noted. It's almost like he's written one and then written the other. The one is... Um, a more theological yeah, unpacking of the other. Yeah, that's I think. right. Yeah. Yeah. Colossians was written first and Ephesians later, I yeah. think. And so Ephesians is a much more yeah, that's right. theological but sim- unpacking. Yeah, but, but very similar themes that yes. he feels that he needs to cover yep. uh, in these things. And look, it's, I mean, it's also because they're very fundamental themes. These are the themes that, that a church in, in, the, in this situation uh, needs to know. I think he's also just in that passage, sorry, Matt, not yeah. to, to hover too much here, but the Greek gods and the Roman gods that they were worshipping, it was a very ritualistic thing. It, it was like yeah. you go did your duty and then you got on with your life. Yeah, that's right. He's saying, no, 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 this is not what this exactly. is. Exactly, yeah. This is actually a whole life-transforming thing and everything that you do, yeah. this needs to be the central. Yeah, and, and I mean, uh, the, the Roman cult didn't, encourage congregations forming no, yeah. you go to the temple and you come back as you say mm. uh, and you know people lived if they were united by anything it was their allegiance to rome really yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest and 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 to you know and to the roman gods and and probably to their you know to the powerful people in town yes. who i mean that, that so so this is this is asking them to Transfer all of their, their allegiance. Not that they're not going to respect authorities, because no. Paul tells them, tells the early Christians that they need to respect the local mm. authorities and obey the local authorities. Mm. But there's one Lord, and that's Jesus. And so, in verse thirteen, as I was saying, he says, "He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins." And he makes some big statements here. Yeah, uh, he says, "He that is Jesus is the 
image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That is a massive uh, statement. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the, the idea of being created... Through him, he is the embodied word of God. Uh, he is the ultimate uh, expression of who God is. Mm. He's the very, uh, the very incarnation of God mm. is another way of saying pretty much what, what Paul says here. So he wants them to realize, as we're saying, this is not another add-on. It's not another add-on to your life. This is Christ replaces everything. In fact, the life that Christ wants to give you replaces the life you once had. Yeah. That's the key. And preeminent, idea. again, you know, that means he's first in everything. So yeah. even in our lives and in, our, in, in everything, he's to be first. Interesting, too, that it's kind of like it speaks about Christ, the incarnate God, being the creator, but also he becomes the creation. Yeah, that's right. As well. You yeah. Know? So because he becomes man, you know, and yeah. so he's both the creator and partakes in the creation. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's in. That's right. He's embodied as a as a created uh, being, mm. and yet in a very important sense, in his person is uncreated. Yes. In that sense, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. It's yeah. Phenomenal. yeah. Paul actually uh, points to his own afflictions, yes. and this is invariably what he does. I mean, you know, as we know, Paul suffered terribly, and he mm. puts himself forward. Uh, as a model of what a disciple yeah. uh, looks like, which you know uh, is not arrogance or or conceit on on his part. I mean, as as leaders, you you know you need to be an example. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. And Paul, in fact, refers to himself as the chief of sinners. So yeah, he he doesn't think that he's he's perfect, but he is putting himself uh, forward as an example. Follow my example, and part of that is that he he is suffering and he's bearing with those sufferings mm. for the sake of Jesus. Is that partly also because he's trying to say to these guys who are used to a God system that if you do all the right things by your God, you'll go well and you won't have all yeah. these challenges. And he's trying to say, no, yeah. no, no, actually the opposite here. <clears throat> yeah. In a sense, we've got to share in the suffering of Christ and yeah. the ultimate reward comes. Yeah, later. that's right. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you, you pay off the pagan gods yes. so that everything will Goes go well. well with you. Yeah. And uh, well, when you, Give your life to Jesus. Paul is saying, "Well, uh, you're going to you're going to pay for that, but there's no other way to live." And so he says, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings." So it's not that this is a bad thing. He he constantly points to affliction as a mark of of discipleship and yeah. of the fact that we get to join in uh, with Christ's sufferings. In fact, he says, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh." I'm filling up, he says, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, he's not saying that there was something that Christ didn't do. I mean, Christ uh, fully achieved salvation. So there's nothing that we need to add to that. But what he's saying here is that he his his sufferings are an extension of what Christ is yeah. doing. That that this that he as part of the body of Christ is fulfilling, uh, and and that's what he means by filling up what is lacking. There's still fulfillment. Christ has made something possible yes. perfectly by his suffering, but there's a fulfillment. And the fulfillment is uh, is the mission. Mm-hmm. There's something to be fulfilled. And so he's saying that, you know, he's fulfilling that. And so he, in a sense, is, and we are 
as disciples of Christ, we are the extension of the ministry yes. of Christ. Yeah, it and continues. That's right through us. And so, you know, Paul is pointing to the, this is what this looks like. I mean, Christ suffered, uh, and and we will also need to be prepared uh, to give up everything for the sake of this mission. Uh, hence, and again, he's going to get to the you know put to death the old self. Yeah, and and so literally is in a sense give up everything, but we don't. It's not that we lose anything that was worthwhile. Yes, no, we gain everything uh, infinitely more than what we lost. Yeah. He speaks of this mystery that the, the the message of this mystery, which he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It, it's interesting to note here too that the this gift of the indwelling Spirit, which which Paul is constantly pointing to in his letters, this is the essence of the new life. That if we give ourselves over to as a sacrifice to Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, which is which he also refers to as the Spirit of Christ. Christ in you, uh, the hope of glory, he says here. So he says in verse 29, this, for this I toil, struggling with all this energy that, uh, that he powerfully works within me. So there's a sense of, uh, you know, he's working, uh, but it's actually he's working with the Holy Spirit that is working through him. So again, it's the nature of this sacrificial mm-hmm. life that it's Jesus working his ministry out through us. Yeah. So in, in, in chapter two, building on that idea of just living out a new life in Christ, he says in verse six, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. So there's this sense in which our identity is now subsumed in him. Not, not that we lose again. We don't lose our sense of uh, individuality. In a sense, our life becomes bigger than just ourselves. Yes. We become a part of something bigger. And he covers off on not, you know, not getting caught up with people who can speak really well and be yeah, convincing right. arguments and uh, empty just deceit kind of yeah, based on right. human traditions and all those sorts yeah. of things. The elemental forces of the world, because a lot of the gods were around the elements of the world. You that's know, that, right. That we're beyond. So he says all, all of the yeah, that's right. All of these, all of these other things complicated systems of yeah. prayers and, yeah. and sacrifice. You don't need to, none of that is needed anymore. In fact, he even refers to the, the Jewish practices. He said, don't yes. let anyone try and draw you back into this uh, stuff. He says in verse 16 of chapter two, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So all of that is fulfilled if we give our lives to Jesus and walk in his mission and love God and love others and, uh, in a sense, allow the ministry of Jesus to be worked out through us, then we're fulfilling all of those things. Yeah, exactly. They they were shadows. They were signs pointing forward to to what is being fulfilled. And he uh, says it again even even more strongly in verse 20. He says, if you died with Christ to the elemental forces of this world, then why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Yeah, exactly. Why do you submit to the regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Yeah. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They're human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value against fleshly indulgence. It's just profound because that, you know, I mean, we see this everywhere and even even within, you know, Christianity, there are moments in Christian history and in places and times where we've fallen back into ritualistic behavior, ascetic sort of behavior. We're going to somehow 
do it that way. It's not the way to do it. It's, you know, we, we need to follow the example of Jesus who said, I, in, in John chapter five, I only do what I see my father, father doing. doing. Yeah. And in the same way, we, following Jesus means that we allow uh, what Jesus wants to do to be fulfilled and realized through us. We, it's about being completely given over to him. In fact, he says at the start of chapter three, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind uh, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there's this sense in which while physically we walk on earth, in a sense, spiritually we are, our very souls reach in, in a into, sense into, into heaven. Yeah, nice. and, yeah. and so we have this, and, and he's talking about our position. We have this exalted position mm. in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. This is, you know, this is humanity. This yeah. is, when you go back to Genesis chapter one, this is humanity in Genesis chapter one, created in the image of God. And we have been restored to that original position uh, of authority. So he's saying, so live accordingly, right? So don't get dragged in, not only dragged into the religious stuff, but uh, remember you are now set apart and whole, which means another way of saying this, that you are holy. So he says, put to death, therefore, whatever, what is earthly in your sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He wants them uh, to learn actually to become who they are. And he's not saying, you know, bodily pleasures are to be forsaken at all. He's saying that because of who you are, because you are seated at the right hand of God, because you are holy and sacred children of God, it's for that reason that he says, therefore, being sacred and holy means you can't just do whatever you want. Yes. You know? It's not about your self-gratification. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, look, in our culture, we love the idea of human life as being sacred, but we tend not to Treat like what way. goes with that. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Because because right. if I, yes, it's one thing for me to believe that I'm, you know, I'm sacred and I have a high view of myself, but for something to be sacred means you can't just do whatever you want with it. Uh, and so that's why as Christians, we draw such a tight circle around expressions of sexuality, which is, in a sense, our sexuality is the inner sanctum of our sacred selves. And so it's not just a free-for-all, you know, and it's not just about spoiling, it's about recognizing, no, we are sacred and we need to live accordingly. And that's yeah. what Paul uh, is pointing to here. And as so he says down in verse nine, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And then verse 11, he, he's trying to deal with the, the fact that there was still, there seemed to be these distinctions between the Greeks yeah. and the Jews and the, you know, we do it this way and you do it that way. And he's going, no, no, all are equal. That's right. He, it's, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, that's right. The kingdom of Jesus obliterates all of those yeah. distinctions, all yeah. of those uh, Any distinction, yeah, really. that's right. Slave or free, whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, and again, there's still a sense of diversity in the body of Christ, and that's affirmed in, yes. you know, Corinthians and in Romans and so forth. So we're all uniquely made to to fulfil our our role, and but we're all we're all equal. And this actually, when he gets down to rules for households, this is and and we saw this in greater detail in Ephesians. But again, recognizing how radical this is. I mean, the the male figure in a household had the right of life and death over everyone, everyone in his household: yeah. women, children, slaves. Mm. And this is basically what he's saying here. We're right at the end of Verse chapter 18. three. Yep. Is that he's saying. 
no, no, Jesus is now the Lord of your household. <laughs> yep. Jesus is now the Lord of your household, and we are servants of Jesus, and therefore we're servants of one another. And so right there, he obliterates all of those, all of the ranking in a sense. Yes. I mean, there's still there's still a sense of Role. roles and headship and, and you know, respect for authority in the same way, even though he regards all people as equal, he says still, you know, we still have respect for different yeah. roles and so forth. And he even addresses slaves at that point in time, which yeah. of course was, you know, a common... A thing and talks about them being treated first of all well first of all treating their owners for want of a better word with respect and yeah. working hard even when they aren't looking as though they're working actually for christ not for their owner and then to the owners yeah. of those slaves he says you know treat them like one of the family which is which is an important point again it flows see this flows right out of everything that he said yes. about the preeminence of christ jesus completely replaces everything and so it it obliterates all the customary distinctions yeah in a sense, it takes us takes away all of this, the rights that we think we, we have, have, you yeah. know, we've claimed for ourselves, right? Yep. Because we were nothing and we were deserving of condemnation, but Jesus purchased us, right? So, mm-hmm. so and yet he gives us grace, but he gives it to all of us uh, equally. equally. And yeah. so we need to actually show that grace and that respect by serving one another. Yep. And again, it's recognized, you know, we're still recognizing even within the household, it's recognizing, you know, roles and, and, and authority and so forth. But, you know, he says, masters, uh, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, again, just remember, uh, Jesus is now the head uh, yes. of uh, of the household. And it's interesting what you were saying before, that he says to the slaves, when you work, you're not just working for your master, you're working for Jesus in mm. everything. You, this is part of the new mindset. You know, so it's like, okay, when we go to work, we're not just working for the company or the school or whatever, we're, we're, or, you know, our own employer. We're actually working for Jesus. Primarily, and we're we're going to glorify Christ in yeah. that yeah. context, and that's and that's above just the role you do in that job. It's actually who you are in the role yeah, yeah, that's in right. that job. Yeah. yeah, that's right. He he goes on. I mean, he, he's, throughout Paul's letters, it's just worth noting he is always exhorting to pr- people to prayer, mm. pray, 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 uh, pray for us. Uh, he tells them he's praying for them. This is all happening through prayer. When 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 he gets a good report, he's yeah. you know he gives thanks. His prayers are answered. I found just to finish off, and and we'll we'll move into Thessalonians now, Stu. But before we do, there's just some interesting. He there's quite a a long section of greetings. Yes, there is. that he sends uh, to the church, and there's some interesting people that he mentions here, and some information about those people that we don't have uh, anywhere else. First of all, he re- he mentions uh, Anesimus. Uh, he wants Anesimus to be received uh, as a brother. He says, uh, Anesimus, uh, our faithful and beloved brother, uh, who is one of you? So our brother, right? He's saying, now, Anesimus was a slave. He'd yes. run away. And we, we have the f- book of Philemon, which we'll look at in the next. Mm. Uh, and escaping as a, sl- as a slave really was a crime punishable by imprisonment, basically. I mean, that was a pretty serious Yeah, that's crime. right. Yeah. Although, uh, interestingly, uh, in the Torah, in the law of Moses, this was this contrasted actually other laws in the ancient Near East, which if a slave escaped, that was it. Moment yeah, yeah. Um, they, they would be imprisoned or killed or mm. certainly punished mm. uh, very severely. But in the law of Moses, you were not to hand uh, an escaped slave back to their master. Uh, you were to give them shelter. So there's some very, very unique things about the law of Moses that um, may or may not have been practiced within yeah. Judaism at the yeah. time. But it's interesting here, Paul is very true to that 
in a sense here, Jesus is yeah. fulfilling that law. You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Because the, the the spirit of the Mosaic law was teaching them to treat they they are brothers to one another, and no one's greater than anyone else. And the, yeah. the, I mean, there's so many parts of the Jewish law that you know were designed to confirm that. But but if this, you think about that, if a slave tried to escape or has escaped, that says probably they weren't being treated all that well. Yeah. If you're being looked yeah, after yeah, and treated right. yeah, really yeah. well by your own, you're not going to want to try yeah. to run away, you know, or escape. So, yeah. you know, in a sense, it's saying the same thing here. Uh, yeah. So, uh, look, we'll, 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 we'll move on have more to say that. about Anisimus. But just, just quickly, uh, Stu, we have uh, Mark uh, here who's mentioned uh, this is the only place that we know him as a cousin of Barnabas. Yep. So Mark, the guy that wrote the gospel, um, he's mentioned here uh, as as being with Paul. So, yeah, it's interesting that he's, you know, he's hung in there. He's initially yes. Paul sort of dismissed him. Yeah, yeah. He was keen to dismiss him, but, you know, Barnab- Barnabas was keen to, mm. um, to keep him on. Uh, also, uh, we have Luke here amongst these greetings. This is the only place where we've, where we hear that Luke was a physician. The doctor. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is how we know that mm. from these greetings. So, yeah, interesting. And look, and individual people are part of this. Oh, know? yeah, totally. And yeah. they're named. Yes, this, this is, That's you know, exactly Paul, right. we don't just become unnamed. Like yeah. on, at, on the end of this letter that talks about, you know, our previous you know, individualistic identity being subsumed, subsumed under Jesus, we don't lose our identity. Individual people are commended yes. for the unique role that they play. I think that's yeah, you know totally. remarkable, and I think equally important is to recognise that these are letters to real people in real times dealing with yeah, real situations. That's right. It's yeah. not just a book of kind of here's some good ideas. No, this is actually a letter dealing with very specific and real issues. Yeah. Interesting that they also talk about the church in Laodicea, uh, which of course gets mentioned a little later. Laodicea was a much more significant city than Colossus was really. Colossus yeah. was really so. Yeah, so interesting that they mention that as well. Yeah, so we'll jump into the letter letters to the Thessalonians. Yes, Th- these are probably the, actually the earliest of all Paul's uh, letters. Yes, uh, Thessalonians. Mm. They're written not long after Paul actually was in uh, Thessalonica. Now they yep. had to leave. There was uh, an outbreak of riots, and you can read about this in Acts chapter seventeen. Mm. Their their presence there stirred up riots, and some of the believers were hauled before the courts, and and so Paul and Silas actually snuck out at night so as to not bring yes. more trouble. But one of the problems potentially, because in their absence, then you've got the believers that are remaining under terrible pressure. I yeah. mean, again, you know, this is also a theme in this letter: this pressure that they're under, and only a month p- around about it would it yeah, that's right. since the church was planted. So. Oh yeah, you know, you know these so, are young baby believers. Yeah, trying to take on board something completely that's right. foreign. Yeah, you know, and Paul is amazed uh, actually yeah, yeah. that they have done uh, as well as they that, are. That, that they've done they've done as well, and this shows, I think, how powerful the seed of the gospel actually is, because. These people, despite the persecutions, they are still following Jesus. And yeah. Paul is wow, like this. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's really celebrating this. But one of the uh, you know, one of the, the, the things probably happening in the background is that you know the locals are probably saying, "Oh, Paul's just in it for the money." And, yeah, and yeah. look, once it once it got hard, he just you know he's he's escaped and and he's gotten out of it and he's left you to all of this. And so you know, there's there's a bit of Paul's having to address that. And you know, he says, "I've you know we've really wanted to come back, but we've been prevented from coming back." Uh, he certainly underscores the fact we certainly don't shirk suffering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's that that you're concerned about, and we certainly, you know, we we weren't in it for the money. I mean, that you 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 sense that 
because there were lots of travelling teachers mm. in those days that made money yeah. off people. That was a very common thing in those days, the travelling teacher. Paul's saying, we're not like that. We yeah. worked with our hands. We did. We put no burden on you yeah. so that it could never be said that we were one of those just a travelling teacher. And no, we have sacrificed for this. You know, and he says, and actually the fact that you're still going on your faith bears witness to yeah, yeah. Uh, the fact that this is, you know, uh, this is the real thing. You know, so th- there's a fair bit, like in chapter two. Um, talks about the opposition to the Yeah, message. he talks about the opposition. This is where he sort of defends his integrity, essentially, yes. uh, in this. Well, because there were others, as you say, going around trying to put Paul in the basket with all the others, as you said. Yeah. And so he was just trying to say, hey, hang on a minute. You know, you can trust what I'm saying because here's the difference between me yeah, them. that's right. Yeah. yeah. So we'll skip uh, through uh, Stu. Mm. Um, I mean, he, he's there's a, a lot of really great personal stuff in this. And actually, one of the things I appreciate about letters like this that do address a lot of this personal stuff is that you get a real model in Paul of what a disciple looks like yeah. along the lines of what we've just seen in Colossians. He's actually modeling here what it looks like when when he is talking about why they did what they did and how they did and reminding the Thessalonians, hey, remember, there was a lot of we self-sacrifice and we, and we modeled, modeled something. something for you. Yeah. And I think for us now, it's that that shows us even today. I th- I'm so glad we have this because yeah. we have this wonderful uh, example. He, he talks about how encouraged he was by Timothy's report. It was Timothy that brought yes. back the report yeah. uh, from there at how the church was doing. One of the themes through this book uh, that that I noted is the constant pointing forward to the coming of Christ. And and in both first and second Thessalonians, that's quite an important theme. Yeah. That we live in the light of the return of Christ, the illustration that I've used in our Thrive Perspectives podcast, and I've mentioned here, you know, life is like being dropped out of a military helicopter. You're on mission, you know, you go and serve in a hostile territory, you do this, dot, 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 and then you get picked up on the other hill at the end. To me, that illustration very much came from a reading of this material, uh, Mm. because what I see here is a Paul that is totally on mission in what he expects this to be a hostile. He doesn't expect it to be smooth sailing. No, this that's is right. You know, this is a battle. He knows it's a battle, right? He's going in there into a hostile zone, but there's this strong sense, I'm just going to do that, this, do this, 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 and this, and then I'm and then I'm, I'm going. And this sense of looking forward, in Paul's case, either to when he's taken up to be with the Lord, yeah. if, if he should die, or the coming uh, of Jesus. Now, he remember, he doesn't know when the coming of Jesus is. Jesus himself said, no one knows yeah. the day nor the hour. But it's this, this reality in the light of which he's encouraging them constantly to live their lives. Jesus is coming back, right? He's yeah. coming back. In the meantime, we... You know, we, we press and we That's press right. through the hardship and the challenges and the yeah. discomfort and the, you know, in this case, way more than discomfort for them. There would have been persecution, really significant persecution. Yeah. So when he talks about the Thessalonians, he says, this is a chapter one, verse nine, they themselves uh, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the, the living and true God. Notice how he puts this in verse 10 and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yeah. So there's this sense, you know, that there's an impending 
return of Christ yeah. coming. And it's imminent in the sense that it's the next big thing, thing that God's going to do. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we, we serve God. Yeah. And and it's this is not just a sitting around twiddling our fingers. No. And he's going to talk a lot about the problem of idleness. Mm, um, he does. Because there were some people that thought, oh, well, we'll just, if Jesus is coming back, we'll just quit my job, quit, yeah, quit yeah. My job and go sit on I'll a hill. free bread from this guy and food from this person. Exactly. Right. That's right. So that that's actually, that's a bit of a problem in the, uh, yeah. here that, that think, he addresses. And I think Paul was trying to, in, in pointing forward to Christ's return, he was trying to help them recognize that the suffering they have now is going to be worth the ultimate. And of course, from their point of view, they're probably thinking, is that tomorrow? You know, or the yeah. next day, and so there's this whole sense of tension for them about yeah. when is Jesus coming again? Yeah, uh, because they were going through, you know, significant suffering. You know? Yeah, that's right. So this is where he gets into a, a little bit of teaching here on the coming yes. uh, of Christ. Uh, he says, "Look, when Jesus comes, everyone's going to know about it." I mean, it, yeah. and he's, he talks about that a bit more actually in Second Thessalonians. But he talks about the coming of the Lord. He says, verse 16, the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he wants it because he says uh, a little earlier, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep because the, one of the things that they were concerned, and th- this is probably a question that had been brought back to him because they were all expecting, man, this is going to happen yeah, any moment. Yeah. But then some people had died yeah. and, and and they're worried about what it, what's going to happen with these people that have died. So what he points out here is that uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, right? Mm-hmm. And then... And then we will be caught up. Mm. Uh, in, and the, the caught up here is a caught up, th- this word parousia that he uses here, the coming of Christ is a word that was used when a, you know, an emperor would come into a city. The people would go out of the city to meet, to meet him, mm. you know, and, uh, and to, to lead him back into the city. And so what's pictured here is the triumphant return of Christ and with all of the the resurrected uh, yes. will be raised up, right? Those yes. who have died. Yeah. And then we, he says, those who are still alive at the coming of Christ will be caught up or raptured. This is where yes. we get the, the idea of rapture. Will be, will be caught up and they will... Escort. Yeah, in a sense. It's like an escort, come, you know, because Jesus comes to uh, establish his, his rule on earth. They're not going to lose out here. They haven't missed it. That's yeah. right. So, yeah. But, you know, he says, look, in 5 verse 2, he says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Mm-hmm. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But notice this in verse 4. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should surprise you like a thief. Because on the one hand, he's saying it's going to be everyone's going to know about it, right? It's going to be with the uh, the trumpet of God and and the the voice of the archangel, and the you know it'll be obvious to everyone. But it it will come if we're not ready for it. It'll happen before you know. It. It'll come yeah. up. It'll be upon us before you know. Yeah. But he's saying to them, but you need to be ready so you're not surprised by it. So you're mm. ready in the mm. sense you're spiritually mm. ready uh, for that. That's what he's encouraging them in first. The, that first letter of Thessalonians. Yeah, that's good. He then writes a second letter because soon after the first letter, he gets news back that there are probably some things that they haven't quite understood. Well, also, I think there were some people starting to, f- you know, fake letters as though they were written from Paul. Yeah. Giving, because at the end of this one, he actually makes a statement about this is written in my handwriting, so you know it's actually from me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that we're trying to suggest 
that you know the day of the Lord had already come. And, yeah, and I think this was only a couple of months after the first letter. You know, he's yeah. going back and going, "Hey guys, no, no, let's just go back over this again." Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. Also, there was some concern that it was already happening. Yes, that the day yeah. of the Lord was actually already a, upon. It, it's already upon us. You yeah. know, and it's happening. Yeah, and so. What he's saying here is, no, 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 in, in this, this second letter, he says, in, this is in chapter two. two yeah. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ um, and our being gathered together with him, uh, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, uh, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us yeah. to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, he seems to he, he seems to be mentioning that as though he's – and he indicates the fact that he's spoken about these things before. Yeah. So he's reminding them of things that he's taught them before, but it would be nice to know actually what he's yeah, doing yeah. because there's a lot of debate over what actually this is going to look like. But I think – Probably, and this is the case with with a lot of prophetic material about the future, it's deliberately quite vague. vague. So there is this rebellion that comes first. There is a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction. He's going to oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship uh, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, you know, is that a restored, a literal restored temple at the end times? Is that a figurative uh, thing? Is it the church? I mean, in, yeah. during the time of the Reformation, a lot of reformers thought that this this will be someone coming from within the church, yeah. like almost like a uh, like an anti-pope, anti-Christ kind yeah. of figure. Yeah. yeah, there's been lots of speculation over what this means, and I don't think we'll get too much no, of the speculation here, uh, Stu. It's interesting that he says here, Verse 5, he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Mm. Uh, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Yeah. Now, there's lots of, I mean, I looked at so much discussion around. Yeah. So he's saying... The power of lawlessness is already at work in the in in the world today. Now, look, mm-hmm. Paul has plenty of teaching on that. There are these demonic forces in the in the world today that are active and and they are, in a sense, embodied in some ways in you know emperors like Caligula and great persecutors and Nero and mm-hmm. and so there are these powers of lawlessness already at work. But there's this there's something restraining this that's mm-hmm. you know now what is this is the, is the is the question because uh, he says only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way now what is is this the church i was going to say could it be the yeah, church is it is it the church is it the holy spirit uh restraint is it the yeah. presence of god not and the work of the holy spirit yeah. in the world today is he saying that the holy spirit is going to be withdrawn and there will be no more inhibition of evil anymore, you know, and c- certainly lawlessness. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, everything will just d- dissolve into chaos. Uh, is that what he's what he's talking about? Is it both of those things? Is it the church? Because some people believe that the church will be raptured and there'll be seven years of tribulation and yeah. then, yeah, and then the judgment and everything. Yeah. So who knows? I mean, I, and I know a lot of time and effort has gone into speculating over these things. Uh, I I reviewed a whole lot of different commentaries about 
over this. And, and the commentators lean towards certain explanations, but they're all very cautious. Yeah. They say, look, we, you know, I think we this really is most know. probably the case, but we cannot really know for certain. And I just, I'd sound uh, a note of caution here, Stu, that we just watch out for people who say, no, this is definitely the way it's going to yeah. be. Because, you know, the best evangelical Bible-believing scholars, the, the ones that you know, understand the text, but they're saying, look, you know, it's vague. You can't be black and white about it. It's, we're told this, you know, assuming that we'll recognize it when it happens. Mm. And I think that's just the best approach, forming detailed maps of future events, Mm. saying it's going to happen exactly like this. I just think we're going to, we've got to watch out uh, for that. And, and, and unfortunately so much effort goes into trying to prove that, nail that down and people give themselves titles and, and you know, I, I'm a this, I'm a ist, whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, and meantime, most of the world, you know, doesn't know who Jesus is, which that's is really right. what I I'm think we should just focus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's endless debates about these, these mm. sort of uh, gray areas. What isn't gray here is that, you know, I mean, we're certainly given clear information uh, about these things that are going to happen and certainly about the return of Christ. So that's uh, what we hold on to. He exhorts them to stand firm. One of the reasons for this, and 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 this is also, I think, probably relates to the idleness a, a little bit, Stu, is coming back to the point we made about the difficulty of being a Christian, you know, in these times when you lived in these cities, particularly cities like Thessalonica, which were Roman yeah. colonies, yeah. that everything worked through this system of patronage. It wasn't, as I said, they it's not they didn't have rights like we have yeah. rights un, un, under the law, so yeah. to speak. I mean, Roman citizens did, but not everyone was Romans, you know, Roman citizen. And even then, if you're a Roman citizen, you were dependent on who you know. It was very much yeah. a society of who you know, right? Yep. And being in the favor of powerful people. I mean, the, the the household of Caesar, for a start, it was kind of well accepted that, that well, all the cousins and the the sons and the cousins and the family, they all get the best jobs. I mean, yeah. that that was just accepted in this society. Yes. Yeah. Uh, patronage being, you know, uh, was was the accepted way. It was kind of invented. Yeah, and in, so the local powerful people, it's pretty much mm. you, would, you would do well in these cities if you were- Connected. If you were connected and if you found favor with the powerful people. So imagine what it's like then to be a Christian. You're suddenly out of patronage. One of the things that patronage offered actually also was that you just the local powerful people, they provided you with food as long yeah. as you do their, their bidding. And this, I think, is what some scholars believe that, that Paul's concern with idleness is yeah. here, because I think... What he's saying is don't be beholden to these people, right? Don't don't be bound to these patrons. Mm. Work with your own hands, like make your own way. Mm. Be independent. Mm. He has offered himself as an example of that so that they could he could independently function. Mm. Because if you're living off the handouts of your f- powerful people that you're working for, you're compromised. You're compromised. So that that may what's be yeah. behind what because things these, that were culturally acceptable then you know you know you're so you've become a believer in Christ you're working for one of these people and they say oh go buy me prostitutes or yeah that's go right. yeah, yeah. do this or go do that yeah and suddenly it's like there's this tension between hang on I you know that's not right yeah but you're essentially compromised because yeah. this person's feeding you, you not know, to mention you, all the religious behavior oh, that exactly you've got. Yeah, let's right. go you've take this offering to this yeah. or all that so yeah. essentially yeah i think you know dealing with some of that to say hey you're just gonna you're going to be compromised it's going to be difficult yeah. for you to live the life you need to live yeah if you're going to be dependent or codependent yeah. on these people and, and powerful people 
wanted to create that dependence because yeah. you gain power by disempowering other people. Yeah. And so that sort of dependence uh, or that idleness, so, so to speak, was in favor of those uh, mm. powerful people because mm. it kept everyone in their place. Yeah, right. So there was a, there was a kind of uh, poverty that sort of served them in, in yeah, a way. Yeah, pecking order kind of thing. Yeah, it, it yeah. preserved the pecking order. So again, this just comes back to this, this and, and, and I think we'll finish with this thought, Stu, around how radical a step it was in, in this time to really become a Christian. I mean, you were stepping out of a system and a society and stepping into a completely new way of living that was so radically different. And of course, we have 2,000 years of history behind us where Christian values have shaped our society. And so a lot of those sort of things due to that Christian influence are no longer the case. But we still need to remember there are forces working against us. And we also need to remember we are in a battle, like we're in hostile territory. It's just much more subtle now than it was then. And what we're protected by is when we completely give ourselves over to Jesus. This is the answer to this, is remembering that Jesus is preeminent, that he will be our provider if we give our lives over to him, serve his purpose in everything that we do. We recognize we are working for him. That call to radical discipleship rings through Paul's letters and it rings through these letters. And it can be hard. We can feel like we're going in a different direction to anyone else. But as you know, I heard a preacher once say, it's hard to be a disciple of Christ, but it's harder not to be. Just before we close this episode of Thrive Deeper, I did want to point you back to Matt's reference to our sister podcast, Thrive Perspectives. In Perspectives, Matt, myself, and our good friend and deep thinker, Connell, are working through a series of topics unpacking the Christian worldview. We ask some of the big questions like, how do we reconcile suffering and pain? Or what about human identity or collective responsibility? What about my doubt? What's the point and purpose of prayer and much more? I'd encourage you to check out Thrive Perspectives as we discuss the ideas and issues that shape our lives today. You can find out more, as always, via our website, thrivetoday.tv, or search up Thrive Perspectives via iTunes or Spotify or in your favorite podcast app. We hope you'll join us soon. 